This week, will you do so? This week, the world will call you to bow down. Male, female, young, old, the world will call you to bow down before it's neon gods. You can bet on it. And yet the Bible tells you to stand up for Christ. Would you say that you have integrity? How about principles? Well, sometimes those principles can be put to the test. That was certainly the case for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who will be the focus of today's sermon in Daniel 3. If you know someone who has principles, you know someone who has integrity, you might look at that man, that woman, and you'd say, that's a stand-up guy. It's a stand-up individual. To be a stand-up person, it's to have integrity even when it's not easy. It's to have a set of principles that you hold to irrespective of what your circumstances are. Now, don't get me wrong. Everyone has principles. If we go out down the street, if we go into downtown, Gulfport, Biloxi, what have you, everyone will encounter will have principles of some way, shape, or form. Everyone will encounter will have some ethic that they appeal to, some standard that they uphold, some morality that they advocate. That's not the hard part. The hard part is not to have some sort of, of principle. The hard part is this, that for most folks, those principles are a moving target. The hard part is that for most folks, morality is a moving target. It changes with the age, it changes with the generation, it changes with the culture, it changes with what you see on the news from day in, day out. Having principles isn't hard. The hard part is holding to them when it's no longer convenient or safe to do so. This is the problem we see in the greater world. It's a problem we see in the greater church. When our principles are tested, when they're laid over the, the fire, the coals of our culture, and the culture's views and thoughts and priorities, too often, even in the church, we react in ways that suggest a shift in our identity in our stand and who we are. Sometimes our principles shift when culture or circumstances dictate it is neither wise nor safe to do so. With that said, what about you? As we come to this text, this is one of those texts where it's most helpful to picture yourself in the text. What if it was you? What if the king, what if Nebuchadnezzar says when the lyre and the harp and the bagpipe and so forth, when that sound breaks forth, you lay down? How do you respond? Do you do a little genuflection? Do you look to, to save your life, to live for another day? How do you respond to this? Are you a stand-up guy, a stand-up woman, stand-up kid? Do your peers, whoever they may be, however old they may be, do they know you for your integrity? When the world tells you to bow down and to do something that your Bible, your faith, even common sense suggests is a bad idea, how do you respond? You know, my family, many of you know, we live in an elevated home. And something I've noticed about living in an elevated home is that if, if the pillars were to move, if the pillars were to shift just a couple inches, not much. Those were to shift just a couple inches. What's going to happen? Well, I know what's going to happen. The whole thing's coming down. That's what's going to happen to an elevated home where the pillars change. When high tide comes, my house is going down. As Christians, the same is true with regard to the principles that undergird our faith. Eventually, high tide's coming. Eventually, high tide's going to come in our culture, our circumstances. If our foundation, if our faith is not rested, anchored, secure, it'll be washed away. It's true for us as individuals. It's true for any given church. It's something to consider as we look at the text. If you would, let's return to the text. Let's return to the first verse from today's reading as we look to frame these present-day questions and concerns against this scriptural backdrop. Chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. It's about 90 feet tall. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. All right, as chapter 3 begins, King Nebuchadnezzar has begun construction on this, this golden monstrosity, this golden statue, which was to be set up in a place that's identified here as in the plain of Dura. Now, before we continue, let's get into his head for a minute here. Let's think a little bit through the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar. What does he think he's doing? 
What's the point, really, of this statue in the, in the desert thing? Well, as you might remember, as I hope you remember, one week earlier, one chapter earlier, last week, we saw that the king had a dream. Remember, he had a dream, and in this dream, there was a large statue. Now, in this statue, the head was made of gold. The head was made of gold, and it uh, anticipated or reflected or typified Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And then as, as the rest of the statue is described, its various parts on down to the feet were made of different, different metals, uh, silver, bronze, uh, ultimately clay, and the like. But the head was gold. The head was gold and it represented Babylon. Now, the king had liked that part. He liked this idea of being the top, of being the head, of, of being gold. What he didn't like was that his kingdom would ever be succeeded by other nations. And he sure didn't like the prophecy that suggested that a large stone, which typified Christ, was going to come and knock the whole thing over, destroy the whole, the whole statue. Now, in interpreting the dream, Daniel had told the king that what this means is your reign, such as it is, O king, it's temporary. Don't get ahead of yourself, Nebuchadnezzar. Your reign is temporary. You are going to rise for one season. Then you're going to fall flat and another kingdom is going to come. And even that kingdom is going to be replaced and so on. Such is the kingdom of men. Such are the nations. That ultimately the nations fall, but God reigns. The nations may fall, but God remains on his throne. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, he admired Daniel. He liked Daniel. I mean, Daniel could do something that none of the other wise men and magicians and sorcerers could do. He had interpreted the dream. Not only had he interpreted it, but remember the king had asked his wise men to tell him what the dream was to begin with. He took wise men and he said, I don't just want you to interpret my dream. I want you to tell me what it was that I dreamed. And if you remember right from last week, we saw that no one could do that. They couldn't get into his head. If he told them what he dreamed, they'd take a shot at trying to interpret it. But no one could understand or could guess what he had dreamed himself except Daniel. So Nebuchadnezzar liked Daniel. He knew that Daniel was gifted. He knew Daniel was, was a worthy man. He liked Daniel. And yet, he didn't put a whole lot of stock in Daniel's interpretation. He heard the interpretation, but his understanding of the way that the heavenlies work his understanding of his own place in the cosmos was as such that he didn't necessarily believe that the events that were prophesied would follow, despite Daniel saying that the dream was sure, as was his interpretation. See, in the king's mind, his own reign and rule were perpetual and sovereign. At some level, we all think that at some point, especially when we're younger. We think, you know, this life is just going to be the way that it is on into the future. We tend to see ourselves at the apex of the universe. Well, the king had that idea only to the utmost. He thought his reign was perpetual and sovereign. And so that's what we saw in chapter 2. And as we fast forward here to chapter 3, what we're seeing in today's reading is that the king, who has just heard this prophecy of a giant statue, it was a few years earlier, but who had recently heard this, this prophecy of a giant statue with a golden head that typified himself, he decides to double down on that dream. He figuratively, literally, he decides to tempt fate and he determines that he's going to build a whole statue and what's it going to be made of? Gold. See what he's doing here? Daniel says the head will be gold and the other nations will be these different bronze, silver, clay, and the like. Well, Nebuchadnezzar sits back a little bit, thinks about it, and goes, hmm, well here, I've got the means and the resources to make a statue myself and the whole thing. The whole thing is going to be gold. And not only is it going to be gold, but when people hear the, the, the music from all these ridiculous instruments, when they hear all this music, and it's all at once, it's a cacophony of sound, mind you. And all these instruments are going off at the same time. The king says, when that happens, you all bow down to the gold statue from top to bottom that I have made. You could say in chapter 3, the start of chapter 3, the king is thumbing his nose at the prophecy from chapter 2. Now, something else we need to notice in verses 1 and 2 of our text is that this statue was set up in an interesting place. 
an interesting place. You know, geography and understanding of the region sometimes helps us understand what's going on. Do you know what other monstrosity, what other monstrosity was once erected in roughly the same vicinity, the plains of Dura, the area of Shinar? Do you know what else was once built there? The Tower of Babel. Now, what did the Tower of Babel represent? Really the same thing that the Golden Statue represents. Man's supremacy, man's authority, man's power, man's might. Tower of Babel, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, they were really about the same thing. Both put an emphasis on creation at the expense of the creator. But guess what? Neither is still standing. You go to this region, neither one is there. But the God of heaven is still on his throne. The God of heaven remains in power. Let's look at verses 2 through 6 now. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, administrators, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together. The reason I think it's repeated here, just as an aside, is it's a one-to-one ratio. The people who he told to show up did show up. That was the power of the man. It wasn't like 50% or 80% of the folks showed up. The reason it's replicated here is to show the one-to-one ratio between he told to be there and who actually showed up. So the satraps, administrators, governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that the king had set up. And they stood before the image that he had set up. And then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. I wonder. Do you know what the first commandment is? Remember the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no what? No other gods. No other gods before me. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's number one. It's not like that's number six and number ten. It's not like that's in the dust jacket of the book. Thou shalt have, I like the King James Version here, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's number one. You grew up in Old Testament Israel, you knew that. You knew that much. Now, that didn't mean you necessarily followed suit, but you knew. If your mother had taught you right, you knew there was no other gods. The God of the Bible, the God of creation, doesn't share his glories and share his throne with anybody else, with anything else. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And yet, that first commandment, has consistently been, I think, the first point of attack towards God and towards his people. In the Old Testament, what was the biggest problem that they continually had? The biggest problem was idolatry. I mean, time and again, no matter what God did, there was thunders and lightnings and partings of Red Seas and plagues and the like. And before you know it, gold calf. Thou shalt know the gods before me. The people said, meh, depending on our circumstances, we might do this. The Old Testament idolatry was rampant in the New Testament and even in the church age. It's no different. It's really no different. A few decades ago, those who have a little bit of gray up top, remember the Simon and Garfunkel song, include the line that the people bowed and prayed to the neon god that they'd made. Gods of neon, gods of cinema, gods of fame, gods of fortune, wealth, politics, and more still get our worship, still get our adoration. And guess what? In, in the end... It's going to be more of the same. Revelation 13 says this. 
pagan leader will rise. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he is granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He has given power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. As many as would not worship the image of the beast would be killed. Doesn't that sound familiar? Is that not in essence what is talked about in the context of an Antichrist figure here in Revelation 13? Isn't that the exact same thing? That's what we see here in, in Daniel 3. Again, the point of attack really hasn't changed. The God of heaven says you shall have no other gods before me. Satan, his demonic horde, the wolves, the, the, the goats, they say, why not? Why not? In any case, verses 2 through 6, we see the why not. We see the edict of King Nebuchadnezzar. Let's look now how the people respond in verse 7. Verse 7, so at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people and nations and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Have you ever heard the have you ever heard the story of the emperor's new clothes? The emperor had no clothes. Have you ever heard this story? Hans Christian Andersen, I think in the 1800s, he wrote this story about this, this king, this emperor, who he was wearing nothing. He was wearing no clothes at all. But the people acted as if he was finely dressed, finely dressed in, in the finest of clothes. And the clothes were just invisible to, to their eyes. They acted that way. In other words, the people went along with something that in the heart of the hearts they knew was wrong. They knew it wasn't true. Their own eyes and senses betrayed the, the lack of reality, the lack of linen and threads that the king wore. And yet, what they do? They act as if he was as dressed to the nines, as finely dressed as, as, he, as he could be. They knew what, uh, this was wrong, it was stupid, but they didn't want to face his wrath. Likewise, when a king suddenly builds a statue in the desert, a statue that looks a lot like himself, a lot like himself, I imagine that some of the people, some of these satraps and the, the other individuals there, I imagine that some of them said, hmm, so he's got a statue now in the desert, no gold, it looks like him, and when the music plays, we bow down to it. Okay. I'm sure in their heart of hearts, this is a little bit like the emperor has no clothes. They, they knew that this really wasn't a god. They knew it had just been fashioned like last week. They knew that it really it didn't mean anything other than it was a stroking of the king's ego, so to speak. And yet, what did they do? When the music played, down they went. Irrespective of what they knew to be right. Irrespective of what they knew to be true. They didn't act as such. The temptation really hasn't changed. It might not be an emperor or a king. It might be uh, just the world around us and the various influences they're in. But the emperor still has no clothes. The world still tells us things that aren't true. Things that we know to be false. Things that the book testifies to are false. But the temptation we have is to act as if it's not so, to fall in line, to lay down. For these in Babylon, it's possible they had pragmatic considerations. You know, number one, you want to keep your life. Sounds like a reasonable objective, I'm sure, to most of us. So, Number two, they you know, want to keep their jobs. I mean, these nobility, these, these, these men of some clout. They thought, what's the worst thing to come? We, we bow down to this thing, whether we believe it or not, we, we live to see another day. No matter what new clothes the emperor wanted to try on, no matter what pagan road he wanted to lead them down, no matter what the king said, they were going to respond to the last man, woman, and child, to the very last. Well, almost, almost to the last. Let's look at verses 8 through 12. 
Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You see how he got a big head about his, his perpetual reign? People were telling him all the time, King, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, and the harp, and the lyre, and the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So they're reminding him. In fact, they're kind of setting the king up here. They're saying, remember, remember what you said. Remember that you said, if anyone, you didn't make any exceptions, but if anyone didn't do this, there were dead men walking. Right, king? You said that, right? So the king goes, well, yes, I, I sure did. So that's what goes on in verses 1 through 11. And then in verse 12, the hammer falls from his advisors. They say this. They say, there are certain Jews who you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. As we said in last week's study, Daniel and his three friends have been given some authority and some oversight over the other wise men of Babylon. Now, how did they respond to that? Again, what what was their response? Well, we see here, this bred jealousy, it bred animosity. It didn't take long before they found an opportunity to trap these men and tell the king that these guys weren't doing something that the king said that they must on pain of death. Specifically, they told the king this. They said, these men do not serve your gods or worship the gold image that you have set up. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, so far, he's a pretty chill guy, right? He's a relaxed guy. (laughs) Not in the least. He hears that and the royal hair goes up on the back of the neck and the royal fists clench with furious rage. And he says, oh, no. Oh, no, they didn't. We're going to deal. We're going to deal with with these guys. You see, although this thing ostensibly had been about worshiping a god, we'll call it lowercase g, a god that the statue represented, to Nebuchadnezzar, the worship was really about himself. It was really all about him. And even the king's sleazy advisors knew this much. They knew it was about ego, because what did they say in verse 12? They say that these men, these three men, they have not paid due regard to you. To you, okay. It's the king that's the focus here. There's no sign of concern here that some worthy deity has been slighted. That's not their concern. They're not saying that there's some, some god in the pantheon of gods that has missed out on some glory from these three guys. That's not their concern here. Instead, their accusation is that the three Jews here had slighted the king. Then they play to his ego because they failed to worship the image that the king had set up. And so Nebuchadnezzar becomes outraged. All right, let's see what he does next in verses 13 through 15. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, and the lyre, and psaltery, and symphony of all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you don't, if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And then listen to the way he, he caps off these remarks. He says this, And who is the God? Who is the God who can deliver you from my hands? The reason that the king was angry at these three Israelites was not because some God had been slighted, because he had been slighted. He had been disrespected. The king even tells him, he says, you're not bound down to, to my gods, the image that I have set up. You're an affront to me. It won't stand. 
But then again, in verse 15, he takes things even further. If he had stopped there, this was already an apostasy salad here. It was already bad stuff. But in verse 15, he goes on and he adds something that, that really you almost expect the lightning to strike at any moment here. He says this. He says that my power, in effect, is greater than that of your God, of any God. Who, what God can save you? If I, Nebuchadnezzar, who am used to everything happening just the way I decree it, if I declare that you're going to die, you're going to die. What God can save you? What God can spare you? What God can take you out of my hand? And the answer that the king has in mind is this. None. There's no God that can do it. I don't care how many dreams get interpreted. You are dead if you don't do what I've told you to do here. And so in answering the king's reckless boast, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say this. They've just heard the king basically tell them that, that they'll, they'll be dead in moments. How do they respond? Do they say, we hear you, O king. Give us a moment. Let us work on this. Let's think on this. Is that what they do? Absolutely not. Look at verses 16 through 18. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But... If not, let it still be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. What a statement this is. Remember where they're at. They're in Babylon in front of the king, a king who has people ripped apart, thrown a line, thrown into fiery furnaces. Death is imminent. They don't ham, they don't haw. They say this, O king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We don't answer to you. We have a higher authority, a transcendent authority who is greater than you. It's him we stand before. It's him we ultimately answer to. We have no need, no cause to respond to what you have just said. Obeying God didn't require the acquiescence of the world. Sometimes in modern Christianity, we, we can think that it does. But they say, no, our God is powerful enough to deliver us. We're not going to answer you. If he chooses to deliver us, then we'll be delivered. He can take us out of your hand. He can save us. He can spare us. There is a God in Zion that can do these things in spite of your blasphemy. He can do it. And even if he doesn't, we're good with that. Because we'll have been faithful. We will have been righteous men in an ungodly day, in an ungodly age. Now, it would be easy for us to stand back and go, whoa, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what courage. It would be easy for us to look at this text and think this is about bravery, right? Strength, fortitude, and, and the like. However, let me flip it on its head. I think you could argue that these words demonstrate fear. Fear, but a righteous fear. A righteous fear of a stronger source, of a stronger God. I think that this passage depicts the most appropriate fear that you can have, and that is fear of the living God. Matthew would later write this, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul and hell. You're going to have to serve somebody. Be it the king in Zion, the be it any man, woman, movement, ideology in the world around us. You've got to serve somebody, but it can't just be anybody. You have to serve somebody. It can't just be anybody. And the, you know, the, I think it was like the late 1970s, around 1979. Some of you might remember Bob Dylan. He wrote a song. The song was called Serve Somebody. Uh, serve Somebody. It included this lyric. It said this. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Now, I'm not going to speculate about Bob Dylan's faith or, or theology here, but something a lot of people don't know is this. You know John Lennon? John Lennon hated that song. John Lennon absolutely hated that song because its, it's religious implications, no matter how cloudy they may be, it offended his sense of autonomy. So he wrote a song in response. The song was called Serve Yourself. 
serve yourself. That song had this lyric. You may believe in devils, you may believe in lords, but if you don't go out and serve yourself, there ain't no room service here. Serve somebody, serve yourself. Two competing songs in the late 1970s. Which song do you think King Nebuchadnezzar would have had on the royal turntable? Which one do you have liked more? Which song do you think resonates more in our culture? Right, serve yourself. In closing, let me address that thought. Now, if you were to go, if you go to a, to a, a bookstore, many of those aren't anymore. If you go to a bookstore and you buy just a whole bunch of, of magazines, a whole bunch of newspapers and the like, you take these and you just throw them out on the floor, whatever they open to, whatever page and picture and image and headline and byline and all these things, and they're just there staring at you on the floor in front of you with all their pictures and narratives and advertisements. If you were to look at that, what sort of worldview, what sort of worldview do you think would be collectively represented by this cacophony of, of writings, this, this message. What sort of worldview would be collectively represented there? See, if you view any one song, any one movie, any one article, any one byline, if you view them in isolation, they might not seem like a whole lot. A, a bit of evil, but maybe nothing that we would call an, an idol. But taken as a whole, the culture around us, it's one giant golden statue. Taken as a whole, I, I think that these things, these pictures, these ideas, these suggestions, these advertisements, all the things, all the messages we're bombarded with, I think all of it coalesces into the sort of perverse golden statue that might make King Nebuchadnezzar blush. I think Satan is just as gleeful, just as, as gleeful over the depravity that he's woven in the 21st century North America, the world around us, the greater world at large, as that which existed in early century Babylon. Now, what does that have to do with us here in churches? What does that have to do with us as Christians? As Christians, we might think, and perhaps rightly so, I hope it's true, we might think that we'd never bow before an actual gold statue. But what about all those things that typify the statue? What about all these other things? As Christians, you and I might think, we might even be willing just to stand up and say, I'd be willing to die for Christ. If that moment came, I'd, I'd be there. But here's the thing. That death starts now. It's not all at just one moment in time, some future moment of significant extreme persecution that we have to deal with. The death starts now by mortifying the flesh and dying to self. The sort of sacrifice that we're called to won't necessarily happen all at once, at the point of the sword or with a fire or what have you. The nature and call of sacrifice that Christ has put before us, taking up our cross to follow him, doesn't necessarily mean that at one point, somewhere far in the future, hopefully when we're really old, that we'll face this one penultimate moment where our faith is put to the test. Your faith is put to the test today, tomorrow, on in the future. There isn't necessarily a gold statue we all got to bend down to, and yet the whole culture is one big gold statue. Where are we with this? The sort of sacrifice we're called to doesn't necessarily happen all at once and it doesn't necessarily happen in one trial like we see here in Daniel 3. But it is an ongoing thing. It is a daily thing by which we ignore the siren song of the world. The siren song that the whole world bows before. Mortifying the flesh is an ongoing thing. We ignore the siren song of the world. We put underfoot the idols that previously occupied the thrones of our heart. This week, will you do so? This week, the world will call you to bow down. Male, female, young, old. The world will call you to bow down before it's neon gods. You can bet on it. And yet the Bible tells you to stand up for Christ. Stand up for what's right. Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for holiness. Stand up for godliness. And a godless age. What will you do? You've got to serve somebody. Let's pray to the God of heaven. Let's pray now. 
Thank you for joining us for today's sermon as we've studied God's Word together. To receive notifications of our next episode, please subscribe to this podcast.